Good morning, brothers and sisters. Grace and peace to you. Please turn your Bible to Matthew 16. We are back in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We took a break for a few weeks to preach on topics that we thought would help your Christian life. We hope that you have, it was, has been a blessing to you, and we pray that uh, you could give us feedbacks. Let us know. Let your community, groups, uh, community leader groups know whether it has been helpful or not. And let us know what kind of topics you want us to preach on that could help your Christian life. But today, now we are back in Matthew, Matthew 16. Now, if I ask you, what is the greatest institution in the history of the world, what will you say? I think some of you may be thinking of some of the most influential businesses that have ever existed, like Apple or Google. Some of you may be thinking about the longest government that has ever existed in the world. According to historians, the longest government that has ever existed is the Roman Empire. It was founded in 27 BC, and it did not end until its eastern capital, Constantinople, was destroyed in AD 1453. So it lasted about 1,500 years. That's a long time. But nothing, no matter how great an institution is, is comparable to the greatest institution in the world, the Church of Jesus. By far, it is the most consequential institution on earth. And what makes the church the greatest institution is because it alone has the message of salvation. And this message of the gospel has changed and transform and save billions of lives throughout history. And when sinners are saved and transformed, they start to change the world for the better. Christians were instrumental in ending many evils in the world, such as slavery, abortion, polygamy, pedophilia, and other evils. And Christianity gave basic human dignity to women, uh, to children and other marginalized people. Christianity was instrumental in starting universities. Most universities in the Western world had its roots in Christianity. They were started by Christians. But sadly, now these days, most of them are anti-Christian. Uh, many Christians advance important scientific knowledge. And the concept of hospitals was founded by Christians. So the Church of Jesus is the most consequential institution in the history of the world. When Jesus returns, all earthly institutions will disappear. But his church will remain forever, is eternal. The church is the greatest institution in the history of the world. And today, we'll look at how the greatest institution is built. Let's turn your Bible to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. This passage is about Jesus building his church on the supreme confession. Let's read this passage, and I always read from the ESV. Verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now at this point, Jesus has been training his disciples for two and a half years. The disciples have seen amazing and undeniable miracles from Jesus. And they have also sought his godly character. But they still have some major confusion and disappointment about Jesus. Because the nation of Israel has not accepted him. The common people were indifferent toward him. And the religious leaders wanted to kill him. So they were confused. Because they were taught by the Jewish culture that when the Messiah came, he would be accepted by the nation of Israel and that he will be a victorious, mighty military leader who will destroy his enemies. They forgot about all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the suffering of the Messiah. They only focused on the victorious part. So to them, both a suffering and a victorious Messiah made no sense to them. So this is why when the disciples saw that the nation of Israel had not accepted Jesus, they were confused and they were disappointed. So starting from this passage onward, Jesus began to emphasize and clarify his identity as the Christ. And in order to do this, Jesus tested his disciples in verses 13 to 15. He took them to Caesarea Philippi for a picture lesson. The city was located about 40 kilometers northeast of Galilee. It was located near Mount Hermon, which rose to the height of about 2,700 meters above sea level. And on a clear day, you could actually see the snow-capped mountain from Galilee. And at the base of this mountain was a cave. And this cave was considered by pagans to be literally the gateway to the realm of death, to the realm of the dead. Later on, we will see why Jesus brought them to this place. So it's here that Jesus tested disciples and asked them, who do you think other people say that I am? And so the disciples dutifully answer and say, uh, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. These were the, peop- these were the answers that people gave. And they have all kinds of reasons for giving their answers. You know, they respected Jesus and thought that he was a prophet because of his amazing testimonies, uh, his amazing claim, uh, his amazing miracles, and godly character. But they denied that he was the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. 
So they came as close as possible to God's truth without accepting it. They just paid some respect to him. These people are like many people today who respect Jesus in somewhat. They will call him good things like Jesus is a great moral teacher or a great philosopher or a guide to humanity or even a superstar. But they will never ever accept him as the divine Messiah. This is how many people view Jesus in his day. And this is how many people in our day view Jesus. But none of these views can save people. Now, what about the, the 12 disciples? Did they think like the world? Who is Jesus to them? So this is the question that Jesus posed to them. And this is the most important question in the world because it determines, the answer determines whether someone will spend eternally with God or without God. And after Jesus tested disciples, Simon Peter immediately proclaimed the supreme confession about Jesus in verse 16. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means anointed or appointed king that is prophesied in the Old Testament. And this king will be a savior. So Jesus is confessing that, uh, I mean, so Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, as prophesied in the Old Testament. And the Son of the living God is referring to his deity. Now, some people do not believe that this term refers to his deity. It just refers to uh, his Messiahship. It's just another term for Messiahship. But I think from many passages in, the, in Matthew, it makes it clear that this term is referring to his deity because Jesus has consistently and repeatedly taught that he was Yahweh, God himself in human form, in human body. In Matthew 6, uh, 12, 8, Jesus said he was the Lord over the Sabbath. Only God can be Lord over the Sabbath because he created the Sabbath. In Matthew 11.10, Jesus changed a quote in Malachi 3.1 to make himself to be Yahweh, God himself. And he also forgave sin on his own authority, not by the authority of God. Only God can forgive sin. And in 11.27, Jesus says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So he's putting himself to be equally omniscient like God because he is God. So I think the title Son of the Living God is referring to Jesus' deity. Now if you want to know why some people believe that it's only referring to his Messiahship, uh, you could join me at the Zoom meeting afterward. I'd be happy to answer your questions. So here Peter was confessing that Jesus was the divine Lord and Savior, the divine Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament. And after Jesus made the supreme confession, I'm sorry, after Peter made the supreme confession, Jesus told Peter who was the ultimate enabler of his confession in verse 17. Jesus told Simon he was blessed to make this confession confession 
because it qualified him to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Simon did not make this confession because of his own natural abilities. He did not make this confession because he was smarter than other people or more morally superior than other people. It was because he was, it was revealed to him by God the Father. Jesus said, flesh and blood, meaning humans, did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly Father did. Now at this glance, at first glance, uh, this is such a strange thing to say. What do you mean humans then reveal this to Simon? Jesus, then you as God in human body reveal this to him? What do you mean, Jesus? Uh, yes, Jesus did reveal himself to the disciples, but that in itself was not sufficient to cause his disciples to be convinced and accept Jesus as the divine Messiah. All of Israel saw and heard Jesus' miracles and heard about his claim to his divine, his divine Messiahship, but they did not believe. They saw the same thing, heard the same thing, just like, uh, just like the disciples, but they did not believe. But Peter did believe. So what made Peter different? Was he more lucky than other people? Was he smarter than other people? Or was he more uh, morally superior than other people? No, it was none of that. It was because God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, caused him to be convinced and to accept Jesus. God must initiate salvation for sinners to respond and to accept Jesus as the divine Messiah. No sinner is able to come to God without God first working in the heart of the sinner. Everyone is born with original sin. And this original sin causes everyone not to love God and follow Him above all. No one has the power or the freedom to choose Jesus or not to choose us or not to choose Jesus. Sin has enslaved us to not choose Jesus by default. Now, can anybody be a pretty decent person uh, with original sin? Yes, of course. But none of these people can follow God and obey His first and greatest commandment, which is to follow Him and love Him above all. And because of that, they will get worse and worse. Only when God intervenes by opening someone's heart, then that person can have the power and the freedom to confess that Jesus is the divine Messiah, to break away from the enslavement of sin. And this is what happened to Peter. If God did not intervene, Peter and all of us will be like all the Jewish people, rejecting Jesus. God is sovereign in salvation. And this truth is taught repeatedly and clearly in the Bible. If you pray to God for the salvation of somebody, then you believe in this truth. If you don't believe in this truth, why would you pray to God to save somebody if you don't think he can save that person, if he's not sovereign in salvation? It makes no sense. 
Now, I know this truth has been abused by many people, the sovereignty of God and salvation. All truth in the Bible can be abused by sinners. If sinners take any truth and isolate it, isolate the truth from the rest of the scripture and start to use sinful human reasoning, they can abuse any truth. But if we look at the truth in context and what it is, then we, will, we must believe it and it helps our Christian life. Some people have done this. They have abused this truth and concluded that if it's up to God to save us, then there's no need to evangelize people. Some people even say that if it's up to God to open my hearts to believe, then it's God's fault that I have not believed. They even blame God for their sins. That is not how it works. We are responsible for our sins, not God. When I sin, it, I always feel like it's my desire to sin. I don't feel like God is making me to sin. I'm responsible for my sin. God is not responsible for my sin. He doesn't want us to sin. So if we, but if we humbly cried out to God for salvation and for help, to overcome sin, then he is gracious to receive us and to help us. Romans 9 speaks about the mystery of human responsibility and God's sovereignty in salvation. And the chapter does not give us a definitive answer to all our questions about God's righteousness and his sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility. It just tells us to watch our attitude. Don't talk back to God. Uh, when we ask a question, we must have a humble attitude in asking God about things we don't understand. Uh, both truth about human responsibility and divine sovereignty are true. We need to wait until Jesus to return in order to understand fully this mystery. But it's clear that we can never blame God for our sins. Uh, we have human responsibility and God's glory is his righteous character. He will always judge righteously. He will never judge unrighteously because his reputation is on the line. And he cares about his reputation. So even though we don't understand how these truths can fit, how these two truths can fit in together, but we must hold on to both and wait until Christ to come back and explain it to us. Now, why did Jesus mention the sovereignty of God in salvation? What's the purpose here? The purpose is to humble Peter and all Christians. This truth humbles us. Without this truth, we will be proud. We will boast that is our own ability, is our own intelligence, where we are more morally superior than other people. That's why we believe and other people do not believe. We will start to boast about ourselves instead of, of the complete grace of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 7, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift from God. And this gift humbles us. Humility is crucial for both salvation and sanctification. 
The biggest problem that the disciples had at that point was the pride. The pride was very, very bad. They became so prideful that they started to think that they could tell Jesus what to do in Matthew 14, 15. So they thought that they were gods. They thought they were as good as Jesus, and they were able to tell Jesus what to do. It was unbelievable. If you tend to be a rather prideful person and you don't believe in this truth, you are in big trouble just like the disciples. Humility is critical for a healthy relationship with God. Christians must hold on to this truth if we want to stay humble and grow spiritually. Now after Peter made the great confession, Jesus told Peter the outcome of the confession in verse 18. And the outcome is that Jesus will build his church on this supreme confession. This confession is referred to as rock, the rock. Jesus will build his church on this rock, on this supreme confession. And Jesus here was using wordplay. Jewish people back then, they loved to do wordplay. He was pointing to, uh, to Peter and called his name Peter, which in Greek is Petros. It means literally a stone, a small stone. And then he says, on this rock, which in Greek is Petra, it means literally rock. So on this rock, referring to his confession, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now the Roman Catholic Church interprets the rock to mean Peter himself. They believe that Peter was the first pope and bishop of Rome. And all popes after Peter succeeded in Peter's apostolic office. And because, that, because of this, every pope is considered to be the supreme and authoritative representative of Christ on earth. And when it, a pope speaks ex-cathedral, meaning if he speaks from his official capacity as head of the Roman Catholic Church, he is said to speak with divine authority equal to that of God. Also, his teachings are infallible, like the Bible. He's not saying he is a prophet who is inspired, moved by the Holy Spirit to speak Scripture. He's just saying that he's speaking as a person, as head of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just telling you what the Roman Catholic Church believes. That's their official teachings. You can look it up yourself. But I see the Bible does not teach these things. The Bible does not teach that Peter is the greatest, has the greatest authority in the church. In Matthew 18, 1, just one chapter after this, when the disciples asked Jesus who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus did not say, of course, it's Peter. I already told you in chapter 16. Why are you asking me again? He said, he didn't say that. He said, the greatest is one who humbles himself like a child. And Peter never called himself a pope. He called himself as a fellow elder in, in 1 Peter 5.1, a fellow elder who had equal authority with other elders. And in Acts 15, it was not 
him, but it was James, the brother of, of, of Jesus, who had the last word on the church decision. Also, the office of apostles, like the office of prophets, cannot be passed down to people. Prophets and apostles, they were special people. They were directly commissioned from, by God and through God. Uh, they are not appointed by man. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 1.1 that he is an apostle, not from man, nor through men, but through Jesus. Apostles are not like pastors or elders. Elders are called by God, but they are commissioned through men. God used, God commissioned them indirectly. But for apostles and prophets, God commissioned, commissioned them directly. So you cannot pass down this kind of office. God has to call somebody. In the Bible, no human being can have equal authority with God. God has the ultimate authority. Jesus is the head of the church. One major difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in Christianity, the highest authority is God and, and his word. It is not in a person. It is not in a pastor, in an elder, in a pope, or any religious leader. Is in God and in His Word. This is why we encourage people to read the Bible. We don't hide the Bible. We want you to read it. It's the highest authority. I'm not giving you an exhaustive list of why Peter is not the rock. There are a lot more, a lot more reasons, but I don't have time for it. So based on all these scriptures, I believe that. The Bible is clear that the rock is referring to the supreme confession that Peter made. It's not referring to Peter himself. And whoever made this confession, like Peter, that person will be saved and become a Christian. And that person will be a member of Jesus' church. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Once someone confesses Jesus is Lord, that person is saved and that person becomes part of Jesus' church. And this is how Jesus has built his church throughout the history of the world. It is built on this supreme confession. The church is not a building. Uh, it is composed of all Christians throughout the history of the world. And the church is God's family. And the big family of Jesus is what we call the universal church. And within this big families, we have smaller families that meet in local churches. JICF is a local church, but part of the bigger family, the universal church of God. And local churches must follow instructions in the Bible. They are not supposed to do whatever they want. They need to be organized according to the Bible. According to 1 Timothy 3.1, a local church is led by a group of elders, not by a person, not by a pastor or a pope, but by a group of elders who have equal authority. 
And the task of the local church is to fulfill the Great Commission. These are the instructions that God has given the local churches, and there are many other instructions. So in that sense, a church is an organization. We are not disorganized. We are not disorganized. We are organized according to what the Bible says. But the church is more than an organization. It is the family of God. It is not a building. It is composed of all believers. Not only did Jesus say that he will build his church on this great confession, but he guaranteed that he will build his church despite all odds, despite all opposition against him. And he said that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against him. Hell here in, in the Greek, uh, it means Hades, literally Hades. It just means the realm of the dead. So gates of Hades or hell is, just means death. So Jesus is saying, even death will not stop him from building his church. And what death was he referring to? He was referring to his own death that he's about to experience. In verse 21, he says that he's going to die and be resurrected. So he's predicting that even though he will die, despite that, he's still going to build his church. And the reason why Jesus brought the disciples to Caesarea Philippi was because pagans thought that that cave there was the literal entrance to the realm of death. So this was a picture lesson for the disciples. Jesus was using this illustration to increase the effect of what he's teaching. Death cannot stop Jesus from building his church. And this is such an audacious, bold statement. No person has ever talked like Jesus. This is just absolutely amazing. It's divine. From a human perspective, all odds were against Jesus from building his church. There were only 12 disciples, so little. Right? And they were all weak, nobodies, bunch of fishermen and nobodies. And then their leader, Jesus, will be crucified later like a criminal. So if you were a bystander at the time, you would never say, yep, I have high hopes that this movement will take off. The exact opposite is true. You would say, you know, this startup is for sure going to fail. There's no way this is going to happen. But Jesus guaranteed that it will happen because he is divine. And he will always fulfill what he has promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, even if it seems impossible. And historians, they cannot explain the spread of Christianity based on human reasoning. It makes no sense at all. It is impossible. But God is in the business of fulfilling his impossible prophecies. And even now, Jesus continues to miraculously build his church all over the world. In 1949, when the communists took over China, they wanted to put Christianity in China into the history museum. So they began to systematically persecute, torture, and kill Christians. But instead of being put into the history museum, Christianity grew 100 times. Right, this is a 
miraculous thing. Christians can break free from the fear of death because the Lord Jesus has been resurrected. They can break free from this death, fear of death because they know that they will be resurrected with the Lord. This kind of miraculous building of the church can be seen in many places uh, in, in various times in history it's because God is sovereign in salvation. Now after Jesus guaranteed to the church that he will build his church, he gave two privileges to his church. And the first privilege is that they will be the gateway to the message of salvation. And this is demonstrated by Jesus giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. The keys here is the message of salvation that allows people to be safe and enter heaven. Jesus is not literally making Peter to be the gatekeeper before the gates of heaven. A lot of cartoons and a lot of shows depict that kind of thing. But that is not true. This is talking about being the message, the conduits of the gospel so that people can hear the gospel and be safe and enter God's kingdom. It is a wonderful privilege that's given to all Christians, especially in places where there are no churches, where there are no Christian witness. Missionaries have to risk their lives to share the gospel with these people. So they are the gateway to the kingdom of heaven in that sense. And you don't, we don't really necessarily need to be in a mission field, in an unreached place to be the gateway to God's kingdom. For some people that you met, uh, the only Christian that they may meet in their lifetime is you. So you have this wonderful privilege to share the gospel to them in a respect, respectful and gentle, gentle way. And when they enter heaven, they will be eternally grateful to you. This is the first privilege that we have as Christians. And the second privilege that Jesus gave to the church is being the gatekeepers of his church based on his truth. This is demonstrated by Jesus giving uh, the privilege of binding and loosing to Peter. Binding means uh, not forgiving some people's sins. Uh, and loosing means to forgive people's sins. These were common terms in Jewish culture. The rabbis often use this to forgive someone's sin based on Old Testament teaching or not to forgive someone's sin based on Old Testament teaching. So they were the gatekeepers of Judaism. But now Jesus is making Christians to be the gatekeeper of his church. And church is supposed to teach and proclaim what is sin and what is not sin in the Bible based on what Jesus taught because he is the head of the church, not based on a personal view, not based on a leader's view. And Jesus has given his people, so he has given the privilege of being gatekeepers to all Christians. Now, has churches in history ever abused that? Yes, of course. If a church does not follow the correct teaching of the Bible to judge those in the church, then that privilege is taken away. But if the church judges its people based on 
the teaching of the Bible, then is binding. It's like heaven has made the decision. This is why Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven because it's God who judges, not, not people. When churches use the Bible, use God's word, it's God who judges, not people. And Jesus did not give this privilege to Peter alone, but he gave it to all Christians in the church. We know this because later on he gave this privilege to all 12 disciples in John 20, 23. And then in Matthew 18, 18, in the context of church discipline, Jesus gave this privilege to all Christians in local churches. Uh, in Matthew 18, 18, Jesus says to all Christians in local churches, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So Christians are gatekeepers of the local church. This is a privilege for all of us. And right after Jesus told the disciples about the outcome and the privilege of the supreme confession, he temporarily veiled that confession. In verse 20, he strictly charged them not to tell anybody that he is the Christ. Now this is such a strange thing. Why did he do this? Did he not want his church to be built? Yes, he does. But he had to temporarily veil that because people, including his disciples, had an incomplete understanding of the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was only a military leader, not someone who would suffer for the sins of his people. This is why in the next passage, when Jesus told Simon and all the disciples that he was going to die and be raised, Simon got so mad that he rebuked Jesus. Right? So the disciples, they were in no position to be faithful witnesses for him. So he had to temporarily veil that identity until the cross. And after the cross, he told his disciples, go tell everybody that I am the Messiah, the prophesied suffering and victorious Messiah. Jesus built the greatest institution in the world on this supreme confession. And if you have not made this confession, I encourage you to make him as your divine Lord and Savior. It is the greatest blessing in the world. Jesus is the most loving king in the world. And if you've made this confession, then you belong to the greatest institution in the history of the world. And history is about his story. It is about his story of building his church. And you are part of this great history. And so take joy in it. Celebrate it. Celebrate your heritage. Go read about church history. Know more about your heritage. I recommend reading this book called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. It's by Nick Nehem. It's about church history. And we are not just part of this great history, but we are also given the privilege to partner with Jesus to build the greatest institution on earth. This is an amazing honor. It is a joyful honor. We have the privilege to build something that's eternal and most meaningful on earth. Organizations come and go, but the church of Jesus Christ will last forever. And we get to partner with him. 
So let's take the opportunity, seize it, and partner with Jesus to build his church. Brothers and sisters, in heaven, what do you think we will celebrate? Do you think we will celebrate your bank account? Or celebrate how many properties you have? Or how many companies you have? Or your achievements in school or at work? I don't think so. I think we will celebrate about our accomplishments, our partnership to build Jesus' church. The church of Christ is far greater than our personal achievements. Our, our personal achievements pale in comparison to the eternal church of Christ. But I'm not saying that you need to leave your family or your, <laughs> or your uh, jobs or your companies to go on a mission field. But I am saying that you should use these opportunities to witness for Christ. And if God has called you to be a missionary, that, that's great. So get involved in your local church. Get involved at JICF. Participate in discipleship. Participate in practicing the one another's, like encouraging one another's, love one another's. And the only way you can do this well is to not just attend church, but to join community groups so that you could exercise these things better. So I encourage you to join community groups if you have not. We build God's kingdom also by discipling our children, by discipling the next generation at church, get involved in Verity Youth Group, disciple them for the next generation, get involved in the, all the ministries of the church, prayer ministries and all kinds of other ministries. I know that pandemic has affected us, and you may not know how to serve. If you don't know how to serve, I encourage you to pray to God. God gives wisdom. And talk with other people, leaders, your family, about how you can serve. And God will lead you. God will give you wisdom to serve him. And look at your weekly schedules. Look how many hours you have devoted yourself to serve God's church. And if you look at it and it's not worthy of his calling, then change it. Because this is a wonderful privilege. It's the greatest privilege to be part of the greatest institution in the world and to be partnering with the greatest person in the world to build his church. It should be the greatest honor and joy in this world because this is the most meaningful and wonderful task we have on earth. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being part of history, part of the church of Christ that he's building. Father, help us to celebrate that heritage. Help us to take joy and partner with Christ to build his church. May you strengthen us and bless us as we seek to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, according to his will. Amen.